Good morning. Going to get this out of the way. Yes, I'm wearing a teal green suit, and yes, I look amazing. Thank you. All right. Mom would be proud of me. I got this suit yesterday for 88% off. So if you don't like it, you'll get over it because it was 88% off. All right. Uh, Judges chapter 8. We're going to actually just start with verse 1 because we didn't get terribly far into Judges 8 last week. We're going to backtrack just a touch and move forward. Judges chapter 8, look at verse 1. And the men of Ephraim said unto him, that being Gideon, why hast thou served us thus that thou callest us not when thou wentest to fight with the Midianites? And they did chide with him sharply. And he said unto them, what have I now done now in comparison of you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God hath delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison of you? Then their anger was abated toward him when he had said that. So the Ephraimites jump in. Remember, Gideon called a whole bunch of people to battle with him. God whittled that down to how many people? How many did Gideon actually take into battle? 300. They win this battle. Well, okay, God wins this battle by making the Midianites and the Ishmaelites kill themselves, kill each other in the midst of this confusion in mid, at midnight. They start running away. The Ephraimites jump in, and we've actually given indication here in verse 3 that they've caught a couple of princes, Oreb and Zeb, and they've jumped in, and their, their response to Gideon was, hey, why didn't you call us? We wanted to help. And he's like, guys, you did great work. Congratulations. Let's keep going. Let's finish the job. And that actually just kind of seemed to work. And then we, where we left off was right in verse 4 through 9, this little section right here. And Gideon came to Jordan and passed over. He and the 300 men that were with him, faint yet pursuing them. I, I Hopefully you marked that last week, faint yet pursuing them. These guys started their battle around midnight. That's when they cracked the pitchers, the lamps were going, they blew their trumpets, and they shouted the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. They're still going, and this is some point the next day. They're still going. Right? They have literally been chasing this army. They've been fighting. Faint is probably an understatement. These guys are worn out. Right? Uh, I mentioned it last week. Anytime Matt Gerber is in town, he talks me into doing really stupid things. I love Matt. He'll be actually, he and Vonna pray for them. They're traveling back to the States this week. Uh, they'll be back in town uh, later this coming week. So pray for them, pray for their safety, them and their little girls. But Matt's already talked me into some point in the beginning of June, I'm going to help with an ultra marathon again. We're going to run across multiple mountains across the state of Connecticut. The only reason I do this is I really like Matt. I hate the woods. I hate mountains. I don't even like running half the time, especially when it involves woods and mountains. Faint is an understatement. Last year, right before Matt and Vanna left to go to the mission field, Matt ran literally, when I say right before, like two days before, Matt finished what's known as the Cut 112. It starts at the border of Massachusetts and runs through the Connecticut Blue Blaze Trails to Guilford, 112 miles nonstop. He completed it in less than 29 hours. He was a third-place finisher. Matt also owns what are called FKTs, fastest known times on multiple trails, on multiple ultramarathons. Matt's a gifted, ridiculous endurance-level runner. When he was done with that, faint was an understatement. I was texting him back and forth just trying to keep up and ch check on him, and there was a gap of about 12 hours where I heard nothing because he was asleep, because faint is an understatement. 
Take what Matt does and add fighting for your very life on top of all of that running around. That's where these guys are. Yet look at the, how that verse ends, yet pursuing. They kept going. That's an incredible statement to the 300 men that God picked out here. By the way, does anybody know the names of anyone other than Gideon of those 300 men that were fighting that night? We don't, but God knows exactly who every one of them is. He's got them all written down. We may not know their names, but God's got record. People may not remember what you do, but if you are faint, yet pursuing, God's keeping track of all of that stuff. That's worth knowing. Keeping that in the back of your head. Look at verse 5. And he said unto the men of Sukkoth, Give, I pray you, loaves of bread unto the people that follow me, for they be faint. So he gets to this city, Sukkoth, and he just, all he asked for is some food. Hey, can we have some food? We're really tired. We're hungry. We just need some food. We'll keep on going here. And for, sorry, verse five, and I am pursuing after Ziba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. And the princes of Sukkoth, the guys in charge, said, are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in thine hand that we should give bread unto thine army? They wanted proof. Have you already won that we should help you? This gives us, by the way, an indication that these men of Sukkoth, number one, they had less faith than Gideon did. And number two, they're more afraid of the enemy than they are of what God might do. Think about that for a split second. They wanted proof that you've already won before we share. They didn't ask. Gideon never asked these men to fight. He never asked them for arms. He asked them for bread. All they had to do was hand out bread. Right? Uh, for generations, we were under what was known as the Monroe Doctrine, set up by President James Monroe, that kind of kept America out of the world's problems. Kind of. I say kind of on purpose because we weren't real good at following that. Then Teddy Roosevelt came in as president, and he introduced what's known as the Roosevelt Corollary, which basically stated that the, America would become the world's policeman. And it's part of the reason we ended up jumping into World Wars I, World War II, the Korean War, uh, the Vietnam War, the Persian Gulf War. We've been in dozens of wars since then because Teddy Roosevelt believes since we're the richest nation in the world that we should fight everybody else's battles. Whether you're a fan of that or not, we did win two world wars, so we're doing okay. Our record's all right with that. But with that said, we weren't real good at following the Monroe Doctrine in World War I. If you've studied any form of American history, Woodrow Wilson, by the way, not necessarily on the same political spectrum as me, but if you pay attention to what the man did, one of the best presidents we had in the early 1900s in a lot of ways, except for income taxes. That was a really bad move. Okay? He introduced income taxes. Yay. One of the things that we did, though, we're supposed to be out of all of these wars, but we were helping the people we liked to the tune of billions of dollars in aid. Is that really make you a neutral nation at that point? No. To give the men of Sukkoth a little bit of credit, they're trying to stay neutral right here. Because they don't want to upset the Midianites and the Ishmaelites. Why? Because they've been stealing everybody's stuff for seven years and they've been taken over. They also don't want to necessarily help Gideon because they're afraid of those guys, but they also know what's happening with Gideon. They clearly understand what's happening with Gideon. Within some reason, they're kind of trying to stay somewhat neutral here. Are we okay? Because if they give bread, Gideon loses, you help the enemy, and they're toast. If 
Gideon wins. We're going to find out here in a little bit. And he does, they don't help. They're going to be towed. They're in a really bad position. They genuinely are. But at the same time, these are Israelites. They should have known at this point that God's called Gideon to this point, to, to, this, to this leadership role. Everybody else in the area knew. The Ephraimites jumped in. They weren't happy that they didn't get called to battle in the first place, but they jumped in and did the work of the Lord that was at hand. Remember that? We talked about that last week. These guys, they said no unless you can prove that you've already won. It's an interesting thing to kind of keep in the back of your head here in verse 7. And Gideon said, Therefore, when the Lord hath delivered Zeba and Zalmunna into mine hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Mark that. It says, when the Lord hath delivered. Not if, but when. We have talked repeatedly for weeks that Gideon is a lot like us, where he kind of doubted his faith over and over again. There's no doubt in his mind at this point. This is not a, oh, if God can still do this, he is now fully on board when God does this. Because that's what it says, therefore, when the Lord, not when I have defeated, not when we have defeated, when God has done this. Gideon's faith has kind of been solidified here. This is an interesting little transition. Uh, you might, again, I, if you would, I, I circled that word when in my Bible because this, this kind of changes the game from this point on. There's no indication in the rest of the account of Gideon of him doubting his faith, not once. This is kind of a change here. And going to verse 8, and he went up thence to Penuel and spake unto them likewise. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkoth had answered him. And he spake also unto the men of Penuel, saying, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. So he's, t he's actually stopped at two separate cities. At Sukkoth, the men said, No, unless you're already winning and you've already won, we're not helping you. So he actually says, When the Lord delivers us, I'm going to come back and I'm going to beat you with thorns and briars. This is a really weird punishment. Okay? If you're a parent, you have made some type of ve either veiled or very unveiled threat to your kid at some point in life that is so out there that it's not logical. Okay? And I know a bunch of you are chuckling right now because I know you've made those. Okay, If you don't stop right now, I'm going to pull this car over. How often have you actually pulled the car over? Realistically, I mean, maybe once, twice in all the times you ever said that, and you usually pull over and everybody sits up straight and you just get right back on the road, okay? This is, it, he's making a really weird threat. I'm gonna beat you with thorns and briars. We're gonna read, by the way, Gideon's a man of his word, and this is weird, but then the city of Penuel, we find out that they have some form of a tower, some type of a tower in the middle, and they won't help either, so his threat there is I'm gonna come break down your tower. So one, you're going to get whipped with thorns and briars, which is really, genuinely, that's a really strange problem. That's a punishment. It's a weird punishment. The next one, he's going to break down their tower. So let's go on to verse 10 here. So both these cities, nothing, no help. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor, and their host with them, about 15,000 men, all that were left of the host of the children of the east, for there fell an 120,000 men that drew sword. And this is where we get that number that the Midianite and Ishmaelite army combined had about 135,000 men because these two kings, Zeba and Zalmunna, are left with about 15,000. 120,000 men have died. This is still, by the way, within 24 hours of when this battle started. This is all within 24 hours 
hours, 120,000 men have died. That's the entire population of Meriden and Wallingford, dead in less than a day. And death, by the way, it says by sword. This is a violent death. This is a lot of people. And something to keep in the back of your head is these two kings still have 15,000 men with them. How many has Gideon got with him? These are still really bad odds going into battle. Really bad odds. And Gideon went up by the way of them that dwelt in tents on the east of Noba and Jokbeha and smote the host, for the host was secure. That word secure means two things. Number one, they had set up a perimeter. Genuinely, they were secure. It also means they were asleep. They were secure in their tents. Okay, it says dwelt in tents. They were all in bed. Remember, Gideon and his men are faint yet pursuing. These guys were faint and went to bed. And Gideon takes out 15,000 men. They're toast. Verse 12, and when Ziba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued after them and took the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and discomfited all the host. Those 300 men that Gideon was left with God proved why he only allowed 300 men. These guys may have been the greatest warriors alive in Israel at the time. They have now fought for somewhere around 24 hours nonstop. We don't know how many they were directly involved in fighting of the 120,000 that died, but we do know for a fact these 300 men took out 15,000 men in one battle. And by the way, there is zero indication that Gideon lost any of them, of his own men. His 300 men stayed alive. Who could do that other than God? Where in the world can you get a battle, a hand-to-hand -hand combat battle with 300 versus 15,000? 15,000 are all, Bible says, discomfited. That can translate, by the way, I looked that up. That can translate a couple different ways. One of them is dismembered disemboweled. These guys are gone. We're talking blood and guts and gory and nasty. 15,000 are dead, but none of Gideon's men have died. You ever actually paid attention to that fact in this, this account that 300 men were responsible for helping kill 135,000 men and none of those 300 died? Who could do that but God? You also realize these are farmers that have lived poor, broke, and had next to no major training or equipment, who can do that except for God? That's an intriguing little note here. And Gideon wins. Now, Gideon made a couple of threats to two cities, Sukkoth and Penuel. And Sukkoth, he threatened, if you don't help, when I win, what is he going to do to the men of Sukkoth? He's going to beat them with thorns and briars. The men of Penuel said they wouldn't help, and he said when he wins, he was going to do what? He's going to tear down their towers. So he's now won. He's got the two kings. It says he took, end of verse 12, and took the two kings. These guys are still alive at this point. He's taking them back as proof, as trophies, if you will. And look at verse 13. And Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle before the sun was up, giving us the indication that all of this has happened within about a 24-hour, at this point, probably closer to 30-hour time span. Are we okay? Started at midnight. He's been going nonstop. The sun's not yet come up, so we're probably about 5, 6 a.m. He's on his way back. So he's been going nonstop for like 30 hours. Anybody ever pulled one of those where you've gone nonstop for 24 to 30 hours? Did you feel real great when you were done? 
No, he's been literally fighting for his life, chasing people all over, killing people. Faint is a, like I said earlier, that's an understatement. These guys are exhausted. Have you ever noticed when you get more tired, you get a little bit more grumpy? Just, just a little bit. Could it be that maybe Gideon's tiredness, his grumpiness may have been the, re the, the reason that his, his punishments came out a little bit weird? I'm going to beat you with thorns. Why is that the first thing that popped into his head? I'm going to beat you with thorns. And everybody's like, ooh. Verse 14, and caught a young man of the men of Sukkoth and inquired of him. And he described unto him the princes of Sukkoth and the elders thereof, even threescore and 17 men. So early in the morning, they come back to Sukkoth. This is before the sun comes up. They find some young man. More than likely, this guy is some kind of a young man that's uh, part of the watch, maybe. We're not entirely sure what this guy did, but they caught him. They interrogated him, and he gave him all the details. He spilled the beans on the men in charge, all the princes. That would be, if you will, the governors and the elders. And we find out there's three score and 17. There's 77 men in charge of this city of Sukkoth, and Gideon's got a list now. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He knows who's been na naughty. There's been no one nice. Gideon's coming with thorns to town. I don't know how the rest of that song would go, but this is, he's got 77 men on his list here. And he came unto the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, with whom ye did upbraid me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in thine hand that we should give bread unto thy men that are weary? He literally shows up and here's the guys. I told you when I'm back, I brought him. You didn't help. Punishment's coming. How many of you at some point with your kids, you have, okay, if you don't get this done, a punishment is coming and then that time has come. The day of reckoning is at hand. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, am I right? It's, I'll, I'll change, I'll do better. And, and they, they confess sins that don't exist yet. And they're, they're, they're telling you things that you didn't even know that you needed to punish them for. And you can imagine at this point, he's got these two guys. Gideon's there. He's got 300 men. They're exhausted. They're covered in blood and dirt and sweat. Their swords are sitting there hanging down at their sides, possibly dragging in the dirt just coated in gore, and he's sitting there, all right, guys, I warned you. That's a relatively scary scene if you're one of those guys here. I told you, there are parts of the Bible that read like a horror movie, okay? And this would be one of those moments because this is before the sun comes up. You can just see Gideon. The sunlight's coming up a little bit behind him. He's silhouetted. These guys are just dripping. It's gross. It's gory. And he's like, I told you guys told you. It'd be a Clint Eastwood type moment. You know, you got to imagine that in your head. He's this grizzled old guy here. Okay, verse 16. And he took the elders of the city and the thorns of wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Sukkoth. I love how that's phrased. I have that underlined in my Bible. He taught the men. I'm pretty sure that's a lesson none of us want to learn. That's not a great one here. Just the way that the Bible is written, by the way, God, God knew how our brains would work in the 21st century. He taught the men of Sukkoth. We've used that phrase over and over again. I'm going to teach you a lesson. Well, he taught them a lesson, by the way, one that they were not soon going to forget. And he beat down the Tower of Penuel and slew the men of the city. 
So the city next door, Penuel, who also wouldn't help, he did exactly what he said, knocked down their tower, and he killed all the men. This is, by the way, very extreme punishment. All he wanted was bread. They said no. So he teaches them a massively extreme lesson. Is Gideon justified in this, yes or no? Yeah, because God told him to do what he was doing, and these people refused to obey God. Because at this point, Gideon is the voice of God for his people, and all he needed was a little bit of help. He didn't ask him to fight. All he wanted was a little bit of assistance. And this is a bit of an extreme response, but if you've read through the Old Testament, there's a lot of extreme responses. Okay? If you pay attention throughout the Old Testament, and by the way, even the New Testament, there are a lot of instances where the first time something happens, God has a fairly extreme level of response. Ananias and Sapphira, in the new, brand new New Testament church, they were pretty much the first major liars in church. You ever paid attention to that fact? What was God's response to them lying in church? He killed them. Right then and there. No questions asked. This was an extreme response because Gideon is kind of, by God's direction, I believe here, letting everybody know if you don't follow God, you don't follow even basic stuff. You don't help God's people. There's a penalty to pay. Doesn't the Bible command us over and over and over again to help each other out? Love thy neighbor as thyself. That's a command. According to Jesus, that's the second greatest commandment after love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, and all thy mind. We're supposed to love our neighbor as ourself. We're supposed to help each other. Gideon's kind of setting a precedent here that if we don't, there could be a punishment to pay. It's an interesting thought. Let's keep going here. Verse 18. Then said he unto Zeba and Zalmunna, what manner of men were they whom ye slew at Tabor? This is, this kind of like changes scenes a little bit here. We're still going in, this is still going into the same now roughly day and a half. There's no indication that, that time has necessarily passed as far as like they went home, they took a nap and they showered and cleaned up. And it's kind of all in the same timeline here. Gideon turns and asks his captives a question. What manner of men were they whom ye slew at Tabor? There's no indicate, we have nothing else in scripture as to what exactly this incident is talking about. But Gideon knew these two men had killed some men at the city of Tabor. And they answered, as thou art, so were they. The guys we killed looked just like you. As thou art, so were they. They look like you. Each one resembled the children of a king. Then he said, that's Gideon, they were my brethren. Gideon's got some personal beef with these guys. You do realize, God, remember we talked about this a few weeks ago. God told Gideon, hey, go down to the camp and just listen. And he heard a couple of the men talking and they, the one had had a dream and the interpretation was that's the sword of, the, of Gideon, son of Joash. These guys knew who Gideon was and they killed his family in response. They killed his brothers, even the sons of my mother. As the Lord liveth, if ye had saved them alive, I would not slay you. This, this is rough. This is right at the end of all of this. And again, I told you, some of this reads like a movie script. Right at the very end, you find out these guys killed Gideon's brothers. And it couldn't have been for anything other than 
they're trying to get at Gideon because they were afraid of him. Verse 20, and he said unto Jether, Jether, however you want to pronounce that, his firstborn, up and slay them. So he tells his son, kill these two guys. But the youth drew not his sword, for he feared because he was yet a youth. By the way, valid response. Very. I'm not even going to discuss that any further. Just a valid response. This is a young man. He's afraid to take somebody's life. Gives us an indication that he was not part of these 300 men. These 300 men have spent the last 30 plus hours just killing people almost indiscriminately because they're doing exactly what God told them to do. And this young man must not have been part of that. So he, he just doesn't. Verse 21, then Ziba and Zalmunna said, rise thou and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. So they actually put this on Gideon. If you really hate us, then you do it. By the way, not a really good thing to do to call a man's manhood into question when he's killed your entire army and you killed his family. Do, do you think he's just going to be like, well, you know, let's, let's have a discussion about this and, you know, maybe we can resolve our conflict. Mm-mm, mm-mm, you're, you're dead. You're just dead. And Gideon arose and slew Ziba and Zalmunna and took away the ornaments that were on their camel's necks. And at this point, if you want to maybe make a note here, Battle's done. Midianites are gone. And when I say the Midianites are gone, they're gone. Their entire army's dead. All of them. Their kings are dead. The two major princes, Oreb and Zeb, are dead. Everybody's gone. God's won this battle. And, and, and we can't phrase that any other way than God has won this battle in somewhere around 36 hours. 36, by the way, if you pay attention throughout studying your Bible, this is one of the largest victories in all of Israel's history, all the way up to the modern day, for the number of people dead in this amount of time. One of the largest. By the way, if you pay attention in all of human history, it is one of the largest losses of human life in that span of time. This is massive. God did this because there's no way in the world 301 dudes could beat an army that big our god is amazing all we have to do and it's the same thing i've repeated now for months is be willing to do what he's got us to do you do realize that gideon and these 300 men signed up to fight a battle i don't think any of them quite realized how long this would go you realize they might have actually thought it was going to go longer. It's 300 versus 135,000. If this could have turned into some long, protracted year's worth of battle, which Israel fought several battles that lasted years. Uh, look at the, the, the battle between uh, the Romans and those that were up in Masada. That was years worth of siege and battle. The Israelites are not afraid to fight for their territory. Look at what they've done since 1947. They have spent decades fighting for their territory and their country. They're not afraid of that. These guys signed up for, whether it was short term or long haul, they were in for it. They were just willing for whatever God had for them. And if we can get that down, then the key phrase is here, when the Lord, he'll fight on our side. All we have to do is be willing. We, he's not calling us today to carry a sword and physically go into battle. He is calling us to carry a sword, to know the truth, to know what we're supposed to do and to go into battle. But he also said he will fight for us. 
I would much rather have him do the fighting. I've been in a few fights. If you don't know this, I have a really big mouth. Okay? I'm not sure if you, you fully understand that or not. Mom and dad signed me up for Taekwondo when I was like, what, seven or eight? Somewhere in that range? Because my mom was afraid I was going to get beat up. She was right. Okay? This big mouth with this small frame, not a good combination. Personality is much bigger than what God gave me as far as physical strength and uh, uh, stamina and all that. And, and I got in a few fights in my day because I don't know how to shut up at the right time. Okay? I would much rather have somebody big fight with me. I, I used to go to uh, pastor school in First Baptist in Hammond with mom and dad every spring. And I was talking to a really pretty girl one day. Well, come to find out, pretty girl had a boyfriend that I didn't know about. Boyfriend was a big dude. I'm 5'6", and at that point at 16, I was like 112 pounds. And that might have been like, you know, flexing. Um, boyfriend's like 6'2", and a football player. And he comes up. You talking to my girlfriend? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I am. Well, my friend Vinny, do you remember Vinny that I met at camp? Mrs. Gerber, you might remember Vinny. He was from Brother Costantino's church up in New York. Vinny's six foot eight. Vinny was sitting right behind me watching all of this happen, and he just stood up. 16 years old, and he's six foot eight. Skinny as all get out. I mean, it was like a toothpick with hair at the top, okay? Didn't matter, though. He's ginormous. He stood up, and he's like, is there a problem? And this guy just... Nope, nope. I, Vinny was awesome that day. You do realize if we're willing, God will do that? God will be our Vinny, and God's way bigger. And God has muscles, something Vinny didn't have at 16. So let God fight your battles, but you got to be willing to give up and let him take over. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Let's keep reading here. Verse 22. And the men of Israel said unto Gideon, Rule thou over us, both thou and thy son, and thy son's son also. For thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. If you would mark part of this verse, this section becomes very important. Uh, it's key to the chapters that are going to follow. It's also a very key portion of Israel's history. They're actually just straight up asking Gideon, will you be our king? That's the indication here. Thou, thy son, and thy son's son. This is a, a, a heritage. They're, starting, they, they're actually asking him to start a kingly lineage right here, right now. You realize that by the time we have gotten to Gideon, the book of Judges is somewhere around 160 years or more of Israel's history. They have gone back and forth on this for decades. That gets tiresome at some point, does it not? If you look at the very beginning of American history... George Washington technically wasn't our first president. He was our 16th president. Because under the Articles of Confederation, we had a new president every six months. Is there any, any reason why it didn't work after 13 years? You can't go through that many changes in leadership without issues taking place. We okay? So these guys, they're tired of this back and forth and back and forth. And they ask Gideon, can you just be our king? You, your sons, your sons, sons, let's just, let's just start fresh. We want a king in Israel because maybe that'll add some stability to our lives. Does anybody remember who the first king of Israel actually is? Saul. He's about 250 years after this. They've been wanting a king for a very long time at this point. And they ask him, and look at Gideon's response. Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you. Neither shall my son rule over you. 
the Lord shall rule over you. Gideon's response is 100% accurate. He knew we should just follow God. Does anybody know what we call a government where God is in charge? Theocracy. Can anybody tell me where there's been a theocracy successful in human history? Say what? Iran? No. Israel under Moses and Joshua. And that's it. That's it. There's a handful of instances throughout the book of Judges. A couple decades here, a couple decades there. But Moses and Joshua, those roughly hundred-ish years, it was almost a century between those two men, where they were in leadership, is the only known successful theocracy in all of human history. Look at what the Israelites did during that century. They followed God. They saw ridiculously amazing miracles that you and I can't actually fully fathom and understand. Whether you've been in church a long time or you're new to church, there are parts of the miracles that Moses and Joshua did that are truly hard to actually believe. Parting of the Red Sea. We believe it, but at the same time, we're like, how'd you pull that off? And then they conquered all of the land of Israel Set all of that up. Israel had its most promising time in all of its history when they let God rule. When they chose to take over instead of letting God rule, we got the whole book of Judges and got 400 plus years of chaos. Guys, it's the book of Judges, I believe, wholeheartedly was given to us for one specific reason. We have to be willing to let God rule. Mark that verse, the Lord shall rule over you. Had the Israelites nailed this down here, history would not be the same. Because Israel is a key player in all of human history. Had Israel nailed this down, everything would have changed. If you and I will nail this one thing down, our history could change. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face. The Lord shall rule over you. That's all of that other verse condensed into one simple phrase. If we'll let God rule over us, by the way, again, in order to do so, you and I have to be willing. Are we willing to let someone else be in charge? We complain about the government all the time. We don't like somebody being in charge. It is like an American right to complain about people being in charge of us. And it's just the truth. I think it's human nature. Somebody tells us what to do and our first reaction is to bristle. Well, I'm a human. I can make my own judgment. Do you know anything about that? No, but I will decide. Congratulations. That's why everybody thinks doctors are stupid. We're going to go to WebMD. We're going to Google it. I've Googled my symptoms and I am now dying. You have a cold, sir. Okay, yes. All right, fantastic. Because we know more, we rule over us. If we'll let the Lord rule, we can change everything. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for everything that you do for us, Lord.